Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. This podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. I'm Larry Schooler. One of four hosts serves as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. This week, I'm sitting down with Jose Egorbide, a native Spaniard turned college football player, a Los Angeles prosecutor who has evolved into a zealous advocate for restorative justice. Jose shares more about his journey across the world and across the field of dispute resolution with an important pit stop in the field of mindfulness. Well, Jose Egorbide, welcome to Resolutions. Great to have you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having me. When we were getting ready to start recording, we were talking about your last name, and that led us to a conversation about your your origins. Uh, and I understand uh, you were born uh, elsewhere and, and made your way to the United States. Tell me a little bit about that that journey to to the U.S. Yeah, thanks, Larry. So that's that's a great start because um, you know even though I am currently the the chief of the criminal branch at the L.A. City Attorney's Office. And uh, by by most accounts, when uh, when I meet with criminal justice involved individuals uh, in some of our diversion programs, you know, they kind of look at me and they're like, oh, here's who's this middle aged white guy. Right. But um, but they don't know. They don't know my story. And oftentimes, you know, uh, we we collectively don't know each other's personal stories and background and, you know, what we've been through. Uh, For me, I I. I can't say that I had a bad childhood, you know, but I was born and raised in the Basque country in Spain. Um, I was born in Bilbao. And when I came here, I was 11 years old. I was going into sixth grade. And uh, my dad uh, was a professional highlight player. So we moved to the Northeast and he got a contract to play at Bridgeport Highlight. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever been to the United States. So I didn't remember any of those uh, first impressions. Yes. Yes. Uh, So Anybody that's ever been, you know, traveled through Europe, uh, we're a little bit more conservative. And and certainly back in the mid 70s, when I moved from Spain to to the U.S., it was like um, I've tried to describe it to people as uh, moving from a black and white movie to a multicolor like uh, experience. I remember getting off the plane at JFK and. You know, yeah, I was not used to grown men wearing like lime green, you know, shorts and uh, tube socks with, you know, white tube socks with, you know, with different stripe, co- you know, colored stripes. And so that in and of itself was like, whoa, you know, uh, quite, quite a, uh, you know, a shift from uh, from Spain and, you know, the, the area in Spain where I grew up where uh, grown men don't wear shorts unless they're at the beach. You were talking about your dad's uh, athleticism, and I know athletics uh, came to become a, a fairly important part of, of your life. What uh, led you down the path of, of college football? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Larry. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it uh, to me, it was a way to fit in. And, you know, I think um, sometimes when you when you experience a lot of change early on, um, you know, when I got to the U.S., um, you know, just because my name was Jose, not because I looked different, but because my name was Jose, my, I had an accent, I couldn't speak the language, I didn't have any cultural references. I really felt like outside looking in. And and I think sports was, uh, for me, like, uh, you know, a great uh, bridge, um, you know, a great way to 
sort of gap those differences, cultural and otherwise. And uh, it certainly helped me to to kind of stay on the on the right track. And eventually, I you know I I got recruited to to play football at a you know I, I was being recruited by a number of schools and ended up at Yale University, which of course makes my heart swell uh, to know that uh, as my as it is my alma mater. Also, right. um, do you? I know we're going to talk about your career in a second. Um, do you think that there were particular lessons that you were able to take away from being a college athlete that have applied to the work that you do today? Yes, for sure. Um, so, Larry, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, just last week I went back east for my 35th year college reunion. And uh, what was interesting uh, was I was, I was uh, you know, privileged to, to be able to speak to my colleagues as part of a panel on giving back to community. And in that panel, I talked about my Yale experiences. And I mentioned that the, the diversity at Yale was, you know, readily, uh, you know, seen and felt. Um, you know, we, we, we had such a great diversity in that class. And I think Yale, you know, has always been known for that. Uh, but we were also very fractured. And, uh, you know, I think as a as a student athlete at a top academic university like Yale, sometimes I felt a little bit ostracized. Um, that definitely, you know, in addition to my experiences, my personal experiences I had when I first moved to the country, um, you know, made me feel sort of like uh, when in an environment of insecure overachievers, I felt like an insecure underachiever. <laughs> and, and I told my colleagues uh, when I was speaking uh, last week that when I was at Yale, I was really jealous of people that knew exactly what they wanted to do when they graduated and they had their career path already lined up. And I, I had no idea. So that added to this sense of insecurity. And, you know, I really felt um, you know, within an environment like Yale, uh, like I was just surviving, right? And uh, and and I uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll figure it out. But I've since talked to so many young men and women that uh, experience the same thing. They have this sense of insecurity and this sense of self doubt because they don't have all, all figured out. And so we'll talk about my career, but it was so nonlinear. And I eventually got to the right place, but. Um, at the time, I just felt I wasn't fully formed. I was very nervous, um, but eventually I figured it out. Help me identify where along the journey, you know, the practice of law entered into your uh, field of vision and, and what, if anything, kind of led it there? You know, what, what got you interested in that? Sure. So like I mentioned, I, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do once I graduated was very jealous of of um, you know colleagues of mine that that seemed to have it all mapped out, and so you know I, I had some interviews and I went to work for a company that um, that uh, really went into the the sales and marketing um, industry, and I worked for this company out of Chicago, uh, did some work uh, domestically uh, in sales and sales support, and also got a chance to travel around and. Uh, you know, go go down to Latin America, to Colombia, Venezuela, Chile, Uruguay, Mexico. Um, you know, help a one of our consultants set up distributorships throughout Latin America for our products, and so that was a great experience. Um, 
But after five years of doing sales and marketing domestic and internationally, I, I still was not fulfilled. And I knew that I wanted to go back to school. Uh, so it was a matter of like, am I going to go back to business school or law school? And I chose law school. And so that's when I enrolled at Pepperdine uh, Law School. And when you were in law school, kind of where did you see your career uh, taking you or what within the broader ecosystem of law uh, <laughs> drew you in? Yeah, that is the... Uh... The, 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 the non-fully non formed uh, sort of effect continued in law school. Uh, you know, uh, there were some folks that, uh, you know, they were like, I want to be a judge or, you know, I want to pursue like the private sector. And um, I was still trying to figure it out. I went into it thinking I wanted to get into international law until I realized how small that field is. And it's really just domestic lawyers practicing for a large multinational. Um and, and when I came out, I realized, well, I love sales. I, I, I love presentations. Um, I had a, I felt uh, that I had a presence in mood court and I really enjoyed that type of work. So um, eventually somebody that I knew said, you would be a great prosecutor, you know? And, uh, and so there was an opportunity for me to apply at the Los Angeles city attorney's office. And, um, you know, here I am 27 years later. So I went from law school to the city attorney's office, started there and, uh, I've stayed there my entire career as a lawyer. Um, the, the, the largest, uh, prosecutorial agency in the County is the district attorney's office and they handle all juvenile matters, all felony matters, and all adult misdemeanor matters outside the city of LA. And then within the city of Los Angeles, um, the city attorney's office is a dual function office that has jurisdiction criminally over all adult misdemeanor crimes. I know that the session that you gave at the conference was very popular, very well attended. And so there may be a number of listeners who are already familiar with the journey you took from traditional prosecution to restorative justice. But I also think there could be some listeners who still don't even know uh, what we mean when we say restorative justice. So perhaps start there, if you would, even to include how you get introduced to it um, and how you sort of think about, about what it means. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of lawyers go through sort of an evolution. Um, you know, when, when we start out as a, a young lawyer, in court, especially for prosecutors or public defenders, um, you know, it, it's it's all about getting into court, you know, doing a trial. And, um, you know, for me as a young prosecutor, trying to get as much courtroom experience as I could, rack up a bunch of jury trials. And, um, you know, and while that's, um, that's certainly how I felt when I first started, you know, there, there's a feeling that sinks in even though relatively speaking, you know, misdemeanors, they're, they're only punishable up to a year in jail. And I say only, you know, relative to felonies that where you're really somebody's life could be at stake. Um, so, so the stakes are lower, but, um, but you're still dealing with, you know, you're dealing with individuals, you're dealing with people's lives. And so you shift, you know, at some point in your career, you realize, Hey, the, the, there's individuals behind these files, both on the victim side and and on the offender side. There are 
there are personal stories and there are reasons why these individuals ended up in this situation. And so you, you shift from this very transactional mode that maybe you start off as um, and then get into a more, uh, at least for me, um, you know, a, a mode where I, I really wanted to um, see if there was any way to have a transformational effect. Um, you know, uh, most, most prosecutors think about public safety as the guiding uh, goal. Um, but um, here in this office and certainly under uh, my current um, city attorney, Mike Fuhrer, um, our focus has been on uh, reducing recidivism as much as it is, you know, of course you want public safety, you want to enhance public safety, but if you can reduce recidivism, the rate of reoffense uh, by criminal justice involved individuals, then that's really a win for everybody, right? And, uh, and so I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that uh, somewhere along the way, um, I shifted from this transactional mode to a transformation uh, mode. I guess one thing I'm wondering about is the way in which you perceive restorative justice um, to be changing in the, in the public um, imagination. And I ask that in part because in the work that I've done with policing, you know, you certainly see this fairly roller coasterish kind of, of ride here where uh, obviously in the summer of 2020, we saw this sort of cataclysm and, and national reckoning around how, uh, you know, policing is done. And here in the last, I don't know, several months, you've started to see municipal budgets for policing go up and concerns about crime rate uh, rise, crime rates rising go up. And so I know in my exposure to restorative justice, you know, you always hear the whispers of, you know, the, the shorthand might be soft on crime or, you know, touchy feely or, you know, the things that are, are very stereotypical and, and not really accurate at all. But I, I am curious kind of when you talk about this either with colleagues or with others in the criminal justice system in one form or another, um, how are their reactions? What, what do they say about this, this form of, of your practice? So it, it is, um, I, I think that um, you have some folks that are very well-informed and, uh, and others that do look at it very cautiously or, you know, with a sort of a critical eye, like, uh, you know, is this soft on crime? Like you said, um, you have, and you have everything in between. I think if you ask 10 different people what restorative justice means, you'll get 10 different definitions. And so, you know, for me, um, I think that because of my growth mindset and I'm, you know, I'm just like a curious individual, um, I was, I feel like I was practicing restorative justice um, even before I knew what restorative justice was. Um, but when I was challenged by my current boss back in 2014, to develop a restorative justice-based um, diversion, prosecutor-led diversion program, that's when I did a deep dive as lawyers, that's what we do, right? We just, you know, we get an assignment and it's like you research it and you you find out all about it. And I was like, oh, wow, like I, I feel like I've been doing this already. And so, you know, I think my 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 sense of empathy and compassion for others, you know, which which was all based out of my personal experiences, um, you know, 
made um, made for sort of a, a great subject in me to you know to start implementing restorative justice on a on a sort of office wide uh, level um, because of a couple of particular experiences that I had had, not necessarily related to my cases, but you know where I these experiences kind of shaped. Um, you know, this, this idea of transformation and how it can come about. And I, I think I've been remiss in, again, assuming that, that a listener knows exactly what we mean um, yeah. when we say restorative justice. So if, for example, I've been charged in, with a crime that fits into your office's jurisdiction and I then become eligible for this kind of what you're calling a diversion uh, program, what, what am I going to experience? What is that like? Right. So, so let's back up and, you know, and fill in some blanks. Um, you know, traditional prosecution is mostly looked at from the lens of you have a crime and then a corresponding punishment. Right. And I think that, um, you know, most of our listeners can appreciate that over the years, you know, whether we've been overly punitive or, or you know, or not, uh, not so much. Um, that would be the traditional criminal justice, you know, process. Uh, restorative justice takes a different look at that, you know, crime and punishment. And so what they do is they they change that lens slightly, and instead of the the crime and the corresponding punishment, they're looking at what harm was caused and whose responsibility is it to fix it. And so by looking at it in terms of the harm and the repair or the restoration, um, you, you're really, um, you're not so focused on, okay, this, this concept of punishment, right? Or sending someone to a penitentiary, you know, the word itself has like religious connotations, right? You're, you're, you're going to be sent somewhere where you're going to be placed in isolation. You're going to think about, you know, that you were a bad person and somehow that's going to magically make you come out and be a better member of society. So, you know, I think our listeners will appreciate that that definition, but also the the understanding that restorative justice is is an idea that is not new. It's thousands of years old, and it comes from you know pre-colonial um, you know uh, cultures and and even before that uh, you know um, tribal uh, cultures of making sure that. When a member of a tribe um, committed a, a wrong against the tribe, that they were not just automatically kicked off the tribe. As you can imagine, you know, in, in small tribal cultures, if you did that, you'd soon end up being a tribe of one. And, uh, you know, that was not uh, to the uh, benefit of the tribe. And so this concept that no member of the tribe is, um, you know, it, it should be kicked out or, or thrown away, I think is, is um, you know, a, a main concept of restorative justice, that, that we need every member, every member of society is important. And the other concept I think that's oftentimes missed, Larry, and, and perhaps you've had this experience, is the idea that restorative justice has to start with this concept of accountability. So when folks say, oh, it's soft on crime, well, not necessarily. It is if you decriminalize and decarcerate, um, and then the alternative is zero accountability. Um, but that's not restorative justice. And so to the extent that 
that's what's happening um, in, in different places, and there's no either individual or systems accountability, then that's not truly restorative. And I think that's an important uh, point to make in this conversation. And, you know, there also, I think, is a perception amongst some that for the offender, the chances of punishment are either uh, significantly reduced as it relates to severity or maybe even eliminated from the vantage point of, you know, incarceration or something like it. Uh, I, I guess what I wonder about from your vantage point is, you know, how do you convince uh, all of the different parties, so to speak, to this criminal matter, that this is something that is worth all of their whiles, not just the offender, but the victim and others impacted by uh, the alleged activity? No, that's a that's a great question, Larry, because, um, you know, there, there's a there's a proportionality um, aspect to that that really matters. And that is, you know, this idea that you have to find a sweet spot in order to have transformation. And and so whatever the engagement plan is or whatever the you know, the, the sort of response, uh, the restorative justice response is needs to be proportional to the offense. You can't overburden or underburden an offender. And so if you have a relatively minor crime, it may be okay to say, well, as part of your engagement, you know, you should write an apology letter to the retailer where you stole the goods from, or you should write a reflection essay and think about, you know, what is it that I could have done differently um, you know, to, to, to make sure that, you know, there's a different outcome in the future. And then maybe perhaps um, have that individual also give back to the community by working in an environment where, you know, the same environment that they maybe they stole from, um, you know, so that they can see that these individuals work hard, that these businesses are necessary for the neighborhood, you know, so that also creates a, a greater sense of empathy on the part of the offender towards the, the victims, right? And that's fine for petty crimes. But as you get higher and higher up in the severity of crimes, there may be a punitive aspect that is woven into the response. Um, I think oftentimes people think that restorative justice is only for like small crimes or, you know, or, or that uh, a, a punishment-based uh, approach and a restorative approach do not co cannot coexist, and that's just not so. Uh, oftentimes, you see state prisoners that um, have their aha moment, if you will, in terms of restorative justice when they're participating in circles within the prison, and it's only in that context um, when they start seeing that other inmates are opening up, uh, becoming vulnerable if you will, and sharing their, their stories of survival, that they really get, you know, this deep dive into their, their individual trauma, and they're able to overcome it and, and come out the other side. So, you know, it, it those are, those are very powerful sort of points that, um, that I think, you know, um, when you speak to, to people on the streets, you know, the, the concept of, oh, soft on crime, or the concept that, you know, punishment uh, approach and a restorative approach do not, cannot coexist or, you know, things, concepts like that, the proportionality concept, the, the, the emphasis on accountability. I think those are all things that um, are 
important ingredients in making sure that a restorative approach is successful? I guess I'm also curious, though, about the pitch, so to speak, to those who've been, you know, victimized, because I can, I mean, I read an article this morning about a family incensed by the sentence imposed upon a drunk driver who was responsible for the deaths of their loved ones. Um, obviously, that happens all the time, and, and it's not to do with restorative justice per se. Um, but I can imagine a, a family member, for example, or even the victim, her or himself saying, Jose, you know, I want you to throw the book at this person. I want you to, you know, give them the maximum punishment. Um, what is the what is the way that you approach their concerns or, or connect with their issues? Yeah, that's um, I, I'll tell you that uh, on the lower end of sort of the, the uh, criminal offenses, um, it's harder to convince a victim to participate because sometimes they think, you know, look, my insurance covers the loss. And this is just like, you're punishing me twice by making me attend this, you know, this circle uh, to discuss what happened. Um, but um, I, I think certain victims, uh, it, it, it boils down to their needs, right? And I think you appreciate that, you know, in mediation, Oftentimes we're dealing about pecuniary interests of one party versus the other, but sometimes the, the interesting work is when you move from those interests to the needs. What are the needs of you know, one party versus the other in mediation? And in restorative justice, it's the same thing. Um, it's just with a, instead of a mediator, you have a facilitator, but it's still a third party neutral that guides this structure conversation and tries to get at, okay, victim, what are your needs? And how can we, how can we provide you know, an opportunity for you to get those needs met? Victims need to regain their sense of control. They need to, um, you know, sometimes they need to vent uh, to the offender, you know, because they feel victimized. And so their needs are very different than the offenders. The offender sometimes needs to uh, express their apology you know, a sincere apology. They maybe have a need to be forgiven for what they did. Maybe they have a need to be heard, to, to have someone understand what is going on with them, you know, beyond just that, that, that crime, but, you know, what is happening with them in their lives, right? Um, and so those, I think that's the, it's not so much the pitch as much as it's, uh, it's really trying to find out from the victim's perspective and the offender's perspective, you know, get them to articulate almost in a motivational interviewing way, get them to say to us, why do you think this would be a benefit to you? You know, shift it on them, put it on them so that there's readily, you know, there's ready buy-in and both sides are ready to participate in a meaningful way. You talked at the outset about a desire to reduce recidivism, that that is sort of a, a top of mind goal across the entire organization, much less this particular uh, program. What kind of data do you have to show you that, that this work is, is doing what you want it to do? Yeah, the data, um, initially, you know, we, we talked to a lot of academics and um, we were struggling with the, the academics need for almost having like A, B, A, B, A, B, right? And kind of a random uh, sort of test of you know how to how does this cohort group um, you know uh, perform? 
versus this one. Within prosecution, you know, obviously that that idea is a little bit difficult for us because we can't selectively prosecute. We can't say, okay, uh, you know, criminal justice involved individual A, you go through diversion, but then, you know, uh, individual B, we're going to prosecute. So the next best thing that we could do was go back and look at our data prior to um, the establishment of our prosecutor-led diversion, this restorative process. And so what we did was pre-2014, look at individuals that were demographically matched to a random number of participants, and then look at this random number of criminal defendants that we filed charges against, we prosecuted them, we placed them on probation, and then how well did they perform after that? Six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months after their sentence was imposed, what was their rate of reoffense? And then we looked at a random number of participants in the program, again, demographically matched, age, gender, charges, et cetera. And so we looked at how well did they perform after going through a process where we, we, we were supportive of their participation? We let them know that this was an opportunity to talk about root causes, to try to address them, give them some supportive services. And, uh, and then by agreement, they also agreed to have their criminal history run in six, 12, 18, and 24-month intervals after successful completion. And when we looked at the numbers, we were seeing five to seven times lower recidivism rates by the individuals that we put through this prosecutor-led pre-filing diversion program. So not only better outcomes, Larry, but, but also intercepting these cases at, before they even enter the criminal justice system. So a system savings, but also a more transformational um, outcome where these individuals were actually modifying their behavior in a way that they were not if we punish them. You know, it occurs to me as we're talking about this, that obviously we're doing it in the context of the field of dispute resolution. And you referenced parallels between what a mediator may do for two parties in conflict and what a facilitator in a restorative justice setting may do. And I certainly, as both a professional and as an academic, view restorative justice along a spectrum or a, a menu, if you will, of, of options and dispute resolution. At the same time, I guess it, it occurs to me that the, the scenario is, is so different in, in certain ways from what two parties who come to mediation, for example, might be seeking. And, and we've often heard the phrase victim offender mediation, but I'm challenged by that just because uh, <laughs> there's not exactly the same sort of standing for both parties there. You know, there are exactly. criminal charges pending, perhaps. I, I guess I wonder, given that, you know, you made this presentation to the conference, we're talking here, where do you see restorative justice fitting into the broader ecosystem of dispute resolution? And, and maybe where does it stand out? Where does it, where does it differ? Yeah. I, so I, I, I think you're you're right on that it's this power dynamic that is different in most traditional mediation settings than it is in a victim offender mediation. So it's almost like a misnomer, right? Because 
you know, you do have a power imbalance. One was clearly the victim and one was clearly the offender. Whereas in some mediations, again, you have two parties that are more or less unequal footing and they're just trying to resolve a conflict. Right. Um, and, and so I think that's a, a very astute observation and one that, that kind of drives not only the future of, of restorative justice and regardless of what modality you use, um, but also mediator's role in, in the future of restorative justice. Because like in mediations, you need a, a neutral third party that is capable of maintaining a psychologically safe space. Um, that's, that's so critical. And I think mediators by and large are, you know, they have all those skills to do so and to, and to practice appreciative, uh, you know, listening, um, and to reflect back what they're hearing from either side. And so they have all the tools to step in and facilitate a circle discussion. Now, where it's, it's different is like you said, within that circle, there are certain needs that the offender has, that the victim has. Maybe um, you have uh, several members of the community that are also part of this circle, and they're there to kind of, if if they don't have, if we don't have a victim that shows up to the panel uh, discussion, they're there as proxy victims, and so they speak on behalf of the victim and the community uh, with the offender, and the mediators that we're using in our programs we bring them from our dispute resolution program. So we bring them into our restorative justice arena, but they've, they're already seasoned veterans in, in traditional community mediation. And so um, it's very helpful for us to have these seasoned veterans stepping into this restorative space. Then all we need to do is really, you know, give them a primer on restorative justice, and uh, that, you know, we're not there to judge the offender. We're not there to talk about the crime itself and to really, you know, get them um, to understand that we're trying to dive into the root causes and that if we can successfully touch on those and start addressing those, then that's what leads to the transformation, not necessarily a discussion about, you know, what happened the day of the offense, right? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating space, I think, for those of us who, you know, practice dispute resolution to find ourselves in and to hold space for someone who, you know, may be on the verge of taking accountability for something we as the neutral have feelings about, I think creates some some remarkable dynamics. Um I, one other thing on restorative justice before I turn to just a couple of other quick, quick things. Um, part of what you read about the Los Angeles program that you helped to, to birth is its sort of notability or its, you know, significance nationally. And my observation has been that restorative justice has more quickly gained traction in countries other than the United States. I'm curious whether you see it the same way. Um, and if so, what's what's going on there? Do you think you know where where is any resistance or or slowness in making some of the necessary paradigm shifts coming from? I I do feel that um, there are some countries that you know as a matter of like a, a as a national priority, 
they've adopted restorative justice or restorative justice principles into their frameworks. Um, I think maybe it's a little more challenging here in the United States with, um, you know, with uh, different states um, and different, you know, municipalities and counties, um, you know, coming up with their own strategies. And they're not always, um, they're not always in lockstep with each other, right? So, um, so again, I think you have a lot of, a lot of um, great uh, energy and great projects throughout the country. Um, but there isn't like a unifying or a uniting set of guiding principles. Um, you know, it takes me takes me back because before I started teaching restorative justice at Pepperdine, I I got to meet sort of the the the, the teacher uh, that I was replacing, Daniel Van Ness, and Daniel Van Ness is like he's a scholar and a, and a practitioner on restorative justice. He's he's an amazing guy. So. When I when I first heard, oh, this is the guy that I'm replacing, I was like, oh, I, I, you know, he he helped like draft some of the you know restorative justice principles for for the United Nations, you know, and I was like, I'm supposed to replace this guy, and I was feeling very nervous until I talked to him, and he said, Jose, your experience at the LA City Attorney's Office as a practitioner um, is something that is very different than talking theory or theoretical restorative justice and different models. And he told me, you know, the, the stuff that you're doing is how restorative justice is going to sort of uh, change, you know, in, in the United States, um, you know, how you, how it's adopted into the criminal justice system. Um, you're right in the middle of it, you know, and, and it's very different than just talking about the history of RJ or, you know, just uh, uh, talking about it from an academic's perspective. And so he he went a long way to make me feel, you know, more comfortable about it. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm still going to use your textbook. <laughs> Surely there are a number of folks who have been giving thought to the intersection uh, between our work and and the field of mindfulness, of course, I'm sure you've occasionally been told that you practice meditation and not uh, mediation. I certainly have. Um, but can you can you briefly share with us a little bit about the way that you have seen mindfulness intersect with some of the work that we've been talking about that you're doing? So, you know, for me, it was kind of a personal and then professional um, experience, and uh, and so. I had, um, you know, my my older sister, who was only a year and a half older than me, passed away in 2017. Um, as a result of that, I did some personal work on trauma, and uh, and that personal work led me to explore mindfulness. Uh, and so, the way I that I did it was the the only way I know how, which is, you know, just I, I grabbed a book from a French shelf. It was called "Search Inside Yourself," and uh, you know, I, I looked up the author, I called them, I hounded him, you know, his assistant put me in touch with, um, with his nonprofit, the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And then through a series of other events, I, I ended up in front of their CEO, Rich Fernandez. And, uh, and I started talking to him about, hey, what you guys are doing is great. I mean, I think that, you know, this whole mindfulness movement that that was birthed at, at Google, and now this nonprofit that is now 
you know, um, teaching mindfulness to, you know, to, to sort of Silicon Valley companies, that's, that's great. But, you know, how about, um, you know, thinking about mindfulness in the public arena, uh, in the public sector and, uh, and trying to um, promote the use of mindfulness to help uh, criminal justice involved individuals modify their own behavior. And I was challenging them on this because yeah, I saw I saw it work so well with me. And I was thinking, well, again, relatively speaking, my level of trauma is nothing but um, the ability to have these tools to sort of self-modulate, um, you know, even even like, you know, at midnight or one o'clock in the morning when you get triggered and there's nobody else around, you know, to to help you. I thought, wow, this would be a great set of tools to teach our young offenders, especially you know, our 18 to 25 year old criminal justice involved individuals that maybe have never had an outlet before this on how to, you know, really deal with these emotional triggers that that they're experiencing. So that was that was my, you know, my sort of aha moment in terms of mindfulness. I, I learned about it personally, then I saw the applications professionally, and then I started just moving towards how can I get this introduced into our criminal justice system. That is something I would like to see up close and personal someday, I can tell you. Um, Jose Egorbide, thank you very much for this uh, rich and, and uh, thought-provoking conversation. We appreciate it. Absolutely, Larry. That was Jose Egorbide discussing his evolution as a prosecutor into the fields of restorative justice and mindfulness. Thanks for joining us for Resolutions. I'm Larry Schooler.